Hey there, thank you so much for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network. I'm Burke Allen, live from Washington, D.C., and the show of service of our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a speaker or your meeting planner, get together at the Speaker Match virtual marketplace and find one another. That's SpeakerMatch.com. Well, today's guest uh, has an interesting story to tell in a brand new book that tells it there are special forces. And then there are Navy SEALs. And our guest today, Justin Sheffield, was one of that elite fighting force. And he joins us on the Big Time Talker podcast. First of all, congratulations on writing the book. It must have been difficult to to go back and relive some of those stories. Yes, sir. And thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, Let's rewind back to you as a young guy before you became a SEAL. What was... What was a youthful Justin Sheffield like? <laughs> um, well, I grew up in a, a middle-class home in a small town in West Texas called San Angelo. And um, I grew up playing soccer. Um, my dad is a jeweler. My mom was a teacher. And me and my brother both played sports. And we, uh, let's see, we did Boy Scouts. We also got into some trouble. Um, but our parents raised us to be Christians and God-fearing and God-loving, and um, and we both uh, made it to SEAL Team Six eventually. So they did pretty well. But uh, yeah, so we it was good growing up in West Texas. Um, I wonder as you look back on that time, and and I didn't realize your brother was also in SEAL Team Six. Was there any any predestination that this was your future? I mean, did you have a family that was in the military? I didn't actually. I, I had a lot of family in the military, but not uh, not my immediate family. Um, my dad had given me a book when I was about I don't know maybe fourteen or fifteen. I don't remember exactly, but uh, it was called Rogue Warrior, written by Marcinko, who started SEAL Team Six, the first commanding officer. And um, I, it was the only book I had read cover to cover um that wasn't for school or something like that and i really enjoyed it and i didn't really understand what navy seals were but uh reading that i was like okay this guy you know all the stories about vietnam and and uh, kind of this, my first introduction to navy seals and how difficult the training was and uh it was very candid the way he wrote the book i really enjoyed reading it and i really from that point i started reading everything i could get my hands on and um and as I went and got a little older, I actually started talking to uh, some guys that were Marine recruiters when I was in high school. They'd come to our high school. And me and my buddies originally had th- thought about joining the Marine Corps. And um, so that was kind of the start of it. I also, you know, my mom took me to an air show one time. I got to watch the leapfrogs jump in, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's a Navy uh, skydive team. It used to be all Navy SEALs. Now I think it's, um, anybody can do it in the Navy, but they, uh, you know, these guys jumped in to an airfield and we were all sitting down in bleachers watching. It was like a, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to an air show, but sure. Pretty, it was pretty amazing. Um, I watched these guys jump out parachutes. They're linking up in the air and they're doing all these flips and stuff coming down. And, um, and then I got to talk to them for just a minute, but I got to talk to them and, uh, you know, I really, I knew I wanted to do that. I had long hair at the time. I think they made fun of me a little bit, but, uh, <laughs> these big, these big tough guys, they were larger than life. And, um, and I couldn't get, 
my hands on enough stuff about seals and you know about I guess I trying to think what age I was 19 I had graduated from high school and followed my brother he he uh he got a scholarship to UT so he was living in Austin and I was pretty ready to get out of San Angelo by then and I went up there I didn't get into UT but I got into the community college and I couldn't care less about college to tell you the truth but I uh I thought that was the next step that I was supposed to do right and, you know, I kind of put the military idea on the back burner. I was like, that's something I'm still going to do someday. But um, anyway, ended up moving up there and I got in some trouble. And that trouble was enough to move me back home and put me on house arrest for a little while. And the only thing I was allowed to do was um, leave the house for church or work. So I would go to church on Wednesday nights. There was a college group. And uh, I'd go up there, and that's how I met my wife now. But, uh, um, you know, I had cleaned my nose up, and, and I had a cool district attorney that gave me a second chance and let me, you know, he reversed charges and let me get into the Navy. Um, I'd actually gone down to talk to the Marine Corps, and um, I asked them if there was any way I could be a Navy SEAL through the Marine Corps, and they just laughed at me. So I walked next door and joined the Navy. Um but uh, yeah, so Justin that's Sheffield a snap, is that's our, a snapshot. <laughs> the, you, um, as a kid, I, I wonder if you look back on that now, and and you know you idolized the Navy SEALs, and you thought, man, someday I would love to do that. And then you went and joined the Navy, and you you tell this recruiter, yeah, I want to be a Navy SEAL, and and certainly the recruiter probably is snickering because the, there's got to be just a tiny number of people that try to become Navy SEALs that actually make it. So had had, right. you, had you had that in your head, do you think that, that you would have gone for it as much, or was this sort of that bravado of youth where you thought, ah, I can do it, it's no big deal? Um, I, knew, I knew that it was a really big deal. I, I, in fact, they, they were kind of snickering because they were like, there's no way. You know, everybody, of course you want to be a Navy SEAL, that's what everybody wants to do kind of a thing. And, um, and the Navy guys were great, too. They were supportive, but they were just like, dude, sign here. Let's get you linked up. And, and I remember a couple of them. I mean, that was a long time ago, but they were, they were supportive, but they were also like, look, most, most of guys like you, they join, they want to be a seal. They don't make it just, you're aware of that. Right. And I'm like, absolutely. But I just, uh, you know, I knew I also, I think every guy that goes through it and, and, you know, doesn't quit is going to tell you the same thing. And that's like, they knew they weren't going to quit. You know what I mean? There was never a question in my mind um, whether I was going to quit or not, it was just the, uh, the fear of the unknown, I think, um, didn't make things any easier. Justin but. Sheffield is our guest today. The book is Mob 6, a SEAL Team 6 Operator's Battles in the Fight for Good Over Evil. It's from Defiance Press. Um, Mob 6 is another name for Navy SEALs, is that right? Uh, so, yeah, so if, we've, if we fast forward a little bit, Mob 6 actually – is referring specifically to SEAL Team 6. So you have uh, SEAL teams on the West Coast, uh, 1, 3, 5, 7, and I'm not sure if they have 9 now or not. They might have 9. Um, they didn't when I got out. And on the East Coast, you have 2, 4, 8, and 10. Well, when it first started out in the SEAL teams, and they, be they were UDT frogmen, and they became SEAL Teams 1 and 2, 
one was on the west coast two was on the east coast that was it um you know more people more officers more commands basically um in about 1980 i think it was uh seal team six was stood up and it was a separate thing and they pulled from both uh commands at the time seal team one and seal team two um, and they put on a selection course for all these guys that were already SEALs to go to this counterterrorism unit. Um, they needed a tier one counterterrorism hostage rescue unit. And that was specifically what that command was designed for. When it first started out, it was referred to like the actual Navy terminology on paper was mobility unit six. Well, they shortened it in slang to mob six. And that's what, some of us continued to call it in my era because uh, a lot of my guys, my sort of era age group that came in around 2000 ish. And, you know, a lot of them are getting out now or have gotten out within the last four or five years. Um, we all grew up reading the same thing. All of us read about Marcinko and the rest of these guys that were in Vietnam. And, uh, and that was, cause that was really the last bit of serious combat until you know 2001 kicked off right so we had we had grenada panama stuff like that going on but there's no heavy warfare going on like there has been in the last 20 years so um but that's where mob six came through to circle back to your your question sorry that's all right justin sheffield is our guest today on the big time talker podcast he is a retired navy seal team six member the book is mob six from defiance press <laughs> And uh, you, you talk in very stark terms in the book about the physical training that goes into making a Navy SEAL. And I don't think if, you know, there, there has been a movie or a television show that's been able to bring it uh, uh, any kind of justice. Describe briefly for our listeners what that physical conditioning and mental conditioning is like to make it to, to be a Navy SEAL. Right. So um, this the initial uh, tryout, if you will, is called BUDS, which stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. I'm sure a lot of people by now are probably familiar at least with that. And um, that's where you've heard of Hell Week and things like that nature. And it's basically taking your guy, uh, your service member, and um, physically trying him to the point of they're, they're wanting you to quit. Their goal is for you to quit. They make it very, very easy to quit. And it's just, it's physical exertion over and over all day long. And I'll give you some specific examples, but basically BUDS is the tryout to prove that you are physically capable of, um, you know, performing at the level of a SEAL platoon uh, as an, as a Navy SEAL. Um, just because some of the grueling experiences we have, I'll be honest with you, I've been much colder, much more tired um, in combat than I ever was in buds and buds is pretty bad. Uh, I don't know that it, there's anything else that really comes close. I'd say there's a PJ, uh, pipeline, CCT and PJs are air force guys. They have a pretty grueling tryout as well, but buds definitely is, is, uh, you know, 150 guys started in my class and I we graduated with 28. If that tells you anything. And these dudes show up and they're, you know, they're all in shape. They're all ready to rock and roll. You yeah. know what I mean? You had to, you had to do a lot of physical training and try out just to get there. 
Um, so that's buds. That's the tryout, but it's, it's separated into three phases. First phase is physical conditioning. That's where you see, if you've ever seen pictures of guys running around with boats on their heads or they're out laying in the surf zone. Um, and they'll just, they'll leave you in the water till everybody's shivering. And it's amazing what, what that does to a, to a man. Um, you know, you see guys show up, they look like they, uh, you know, just, peak shape, huge guys, some of them, you know what I mean? And, um, and they, you get them cold and tired, man. They're, they're done. It's crazy. Um, the water is a, a huge, uh, breaker for a lot of guys spirit. Um, and so that's the first phase is all conditioning logs, hell week, hell week is, is five days long, five and a half days long ish. And it's just the same thing you've been doing. No sleep. So they just keep you up and, um, it's, uh, I really detail out some funny stories, I think in hell week that I could remember. Um, a lot of it's a blur, but, um, but yeah, so second phase is, is called dive phase. And you, if you've made it through hell week, you got another like five weeks left the first phase and then you get into dive phase, which it's a lot of diving. Uh, you start out open circuit, then you go into, uh, what we call draggers. It's a rebreather closed circuit system. So your breath is going through a canister full of a chemical called soda sorb and it scrubs the CO2 and gives you pure oxygen. So it's a pretty amazing little device. Um, allows you to carry very little amounts of oxygen, uh, in a, in a, you know, in a bottle and breathe for long periods of time. And we don't dive that deep on Drager. We're using it as a method to insert. So, um, you know, there's some wacky things that can happen to you going deep, breathing pure oxygen. Um, but so that's second phase, uh, also forget exactly how many weeks, nine or 10 weeks long, all in all buds is six months. And then the final phase of buds is, uh, land warfare. And that's where you actually start kind of learning basic soldiering. And I mean, soldiering like that you'll be doing in the SEAL teams. Um, a lot of shooting, a lot of basic, uh, ground warfare movement, um, kind of like think, you know, football teams are out practicing plays. You start learning these plays in buds and then they just get refined in the next course of, uh, qualification, which is seal qualification training. And then you go into your platoon, um, and they'll pick it up into a workup and you'll usually do. I don't know, sometimes a year or more of, of training before you'll even go deploy. So there is a great deal of training and preparation and conditioning that happens before you ever step foot on a battlefield. And I remember at first I used to get a little, you know, uh, we all wanted to go to war, you know, we all thought, not all of us, but a lot of us did. That's why we came in and, uh, we wanted to be seals. There's a war going on. Nine 11 happened. And I remember I'm getting to the seal team and I'm thinking, we're going to go right now. And we didn't go, we had a full workup and there were other, other units going off to war. Um, and that was, yeah, I remember those days. It was almost embarrassing. You know what I mean? Um, embarrassing in I'm what skip, way? I'm skipping ahead. Well, so I'll, I'll give you a story. So like my first platoon, right. I had made it through buds, made it through SQT and I got orders to seal teammate. And, we did a full workup. We were a, what was called a Southcom platoon back then. They would split the teams up, 
has several different platoons in, a, in one SEAL team, right? And I know I'm using a lot of lingo. Just stop me at every at any time and I'll explain. But okay. uh, we call them platoons. They're about 16-man groups of guys, and two platoons together would be a task unit. And you're usually deploying as a task unit, or at least, you know, you're flip-flopping somewhere. So, for example, when we went to our first deployment was down to South America. Well, we stayed in Puerto Rico for a couple of months while the other platoon would go down south, and then we'd flip-flop. We'd go down to Colombia, and they'd go to Puerto Rico. Um, sitting in Puerto Rico, getting suntans and working out, watching Puerto Rican National Guard and knowing there was other forces that were going into combat, it was pretty hard, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because yeah. we, we were sitting there like we can't we couldn't do anything. I think the coolest thing I got to do was a protective detail for the president, and it was uh, off the coast of Cabo, San Lucas. We didn't we touched in one time to uh, to stay in the bottom of the hotel, but basically we were there to get him out on the Zodiacs in case anything happened. It was George Bush, um, but that was that was really it on that deployment. I mean, we got we got in really good shape, um, played a lot of poker. <laughs> and, uh, you know what I mean? But it's like you come home from that and I've got buddies that are like, oh, man, you made it. How was the deployment? You know, Iraq's fully going on. Afghanistan was fully going on. I'm like, yeah, dude, I was down in Colombia with dudes out in the jungle and I'm supposed to teach jungle warfare, man. I'm from West Texas. I don't you know what I mean? I was out of, I was a little bit out of place. I was a new guy, you know. So what is uh, it that makes SEAL Team 6? The one that we all know, the, the civilians, you, you, you know SEAL right. Team 6. Why is, why is that the one? Well, I think in the, in the recent past, um, obviously some of the high-profile missions, I think starting really with Captain Phillips was a big high-profile mission, hostage rescue, and obviously bin Laden. Um, SEAL Team 6 is, is different in a lot of ways. So to kind of follow down that same road, I'm, I'm fast forwarding through this, but it's, I did that first platoon and then I did another platoon and I went to Afghanistan that time still with SEAL team eight, but that was a minimum requirement for me to even try out for SEAL team six. So what, the, what already sets it apart is the, uh, the selection that guys will have to go through, um, to get there. So two platoons minimum, uh, you have to do an interview. Um, the interview is comprised of several seasoned operators and, you know, the command shrink, a command doctor, and they're asking you all kinds of questions. You do a physical test that uh, is definitely a step up from the one you did to go to BUDS. So you have to be in extremely good shape, and they want to see that you've taken care of yourself, you know, and the teams. And um, and then and then you start uh, a thing called selection. We called it green team. Uh, that's kind of the slang term for it. Um, and it's about an eight month, uh, weed out process again, but now you're with, you know, 75, 80 guys that are all extremely qualified to be there. They're, they're all probably combat veteran, uh, Navy SEALs from different platoons, different SEAL teams. They come from both coasts and then they'll, we all meet at the same place, which is SEAL team six. And, uh, that's in Virginia beach and that's where green team starts. So it's different already because of the selection and pipeline to get there. It's quite a long process to get there if you make it through. And again, it's, it's similar attrition rate. I think we started with about 75, 80 guys. And at the end we had about 25. Um, and you really know what you're getting over there. 
Um, they're looking and they're looking for specific qualities. I would never say that the guys at SEAL Team Six are just all around better than everybody else in a sense. Um, there's still platoons that are full of just amazing dudes that never wanted to go over there for whatever reason. They decided to stay at the SEAL teams and, you know, go through the ranks and be a platoon chief and a task unit chief or, or go officer. And a lot of them do that, you know, after a while they'll get a commission, which is honestly, I think the way it should be. I think officers should have to be enlisted first in my mind. I think that would solve a lot of problems, but, um, that's a different tangent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I think, uh, so, so I don't know if I'm making sense, but still team six is, is, is separated by the selection and it's also separated sort of by its classification. Um, underneath JSOC, which is joint special operations command, we're considered a tier one unit or a national mission force. So, when you're at that command, you've taken on several different kinds of responsibilities that you didn't priorly have. Like you have to stay within an hour of work. You've got to have your kit ready at all times. And I mean everything. Um, because you, you could be on call to go to anywhere. For example, a hostage rescue. Those are time sensitive. Um, we're constantly training for every scenario we can come up with. And... Um, it's different. It, you know, we, we will be the ones that were, are called to do a hostage rescue. It won't be a, a SEAL platoon unless it's a hasty rescue. Some of those guys have done rescues for sure, but it's something like they're already overseas. They're already out um, doing one of their ops, and there's, you know, something that happens that way. Otherwise, if it's an American taken hostage, um, like Captain Phillips or the one that I was a part of, or Jessica Lynch, which is back in like the early days in Iraq. Um, you know, those are still team six specific type of things. Um, so they're tier, it's a tier one force. Um, the training is different. And so is the money and assets. Um, we, we have, you know, I, I always told, young seals that because sometimes they would augment with us to come on deployments with us and augment say we needed an extra radio guy at an outstation or we needed an extra medic we'd pull from a seal platoon and these dudes were awesome you know they were young guys usually guys that wanted to go to uh to go to seal team six eventually and i would always encourage guys to go there just it's it's the best group to be around in my mind you got the best assets you got the best training um you know, money was like water there, really, when we were, you know, during during the beginning and really throughout a lot of the war, um, the funding for what we needed to get done was just, it was there, no problem. So it made things pretty easy, easy for a capable group. Um, and that's the problem a lot of times, to be honest with you. I mean, I look at the Marine Corps, when they, when, when we set up SOCOM, Special Operations Command, okay, the Marine Corps pulled themselves away from that. So it's Army, Navy, and Air Force underneath this thing, right? And and they, they can do whatever they want, but they pulled themselves out of it, and they started MARSOC, which is Marine Corps Special Operations Command. Well, they have, you know, uh, Harriers and 53s and um, what are the big things that keep crashing? Um, Ospreys. Those are super scary. But the Marine Corps got their own setup. Um and I wish they wouldn't have done that, but what happened is, is they took themselves out of the uh, out of the funding. So a lot of times, you know, you got this really, really capable group of guys 
that are not going to really be gamefully employed because, you know, just by the unit that they're in, if that makes sense. How long did it take you to get from an enlisted kid to SEAL Team 6? How long was that journey? uh, About, let's see, about six years. And Uh, were there times within that six years when you ever did consider giving up? Sounds like a lot of guys did. Uh, giving up as far as going to, to SEAL Team 6? Yeah, you giving up on that um, dream. No, really, no. I, I, you know, when I, I mean, I, maybe this is a little cocky. I'm sure it will come across this way. But when I was in Buzz, I wanted to be a SEAL Team 6. And I knew I had to go to a team first. So you couldn't just graduate. We used to joke when they were like, all right, what, what you guys fill out these papers, give your top three choices, what coast you want, what three teams. And, of course, I didn't get anything I chose. I don't think anybody did. It's kind of a joke. They, they choose for you. But uh, it's funny because nobody wants to go to STV. You know what I mean? STV is the little mini submarines. Okay. And everything about that just to me is miserable. You know, you're in a little cramped submarine with like six other dudes in the pitch black. You know what I mean? You can't move. You can't do anything. It sounds horrible. Um, I didn't want anything to do with that. That probably would have made me quit. Um, no, I'm just kidding, but we got to, so, so I always, you know, I always wanted to go there to me in my mind, the ultimate was to be a SEAL team six sniper. And I, I wasn't really sure what all entail, you know, when I was a young guy, I had no idea, but it was a huge driving force. And I think for a lot of guys in the SEAL teams, just in general, they have a, uh, just a natural, um, sort of desire, desire and aspiration to be. At SEAL Team 6, because it is the top. People talk about the tip of the spear. It's like, I don't care what you say, that is the tip. I mean, period. Well, I um, think, you know, that leads to a really interesting question, and, and it may be applicable to a lot of people who are listening. If, if you really have your heart set on doing something, you really want something more than anything else, Justin, you're a guy that, that was able to achieve that. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to, to really swing for the fences for a big goal, whatever that goal is? How do you get there? Yeah, so and that's a great question. Um, you know, it, it would be easy for me to say, hey, no, never quit, never give up. You're going to run into things that are going to throw you down and crush you. Um, you know, I've had females say, why can't I go? Now we're in a whole different thing, right? It's like, okay, well, I'm sitting here telling you never quit, never give up, and I'm telling you, hey, you're, you you can't go to buds. That's a whole different conversation. But there are there are you know think about somebody with a, a physical uh, problem or a physical um, whatever they've 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 got an issue, whatever it is. And I mean, I've had kids talk to me and they're like, I want to go be a seal. I'm like, I know you do, but it's not going to happen. I wouldn't tell everybody that this is, you know, hey, if you want to be a Navy SEAL, go do that. To your point, if you have aspirations and dreams, absolutely go for them. There's going to be a lot of people that will say uh, otherwise. I've, I've noticed even since I've been out, it's like um, there's a lot of negative out there. Um, I am a Christian. Um, you know, I'm a sinner, absolutely. I'm saved by grace, and I would say that, you know, truly deep down inside, I could say all the tough things I want to say. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, that's where I was grounded. I was able to pray to uh, a God, our God that made the heavens, and he's listening. 
And to me, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, I know that I don't deserve that, but I would just say that that was, that grounded me. A lot of guys that don't think that way and that's all good. Um, I've seen some dudes that are just straight up. They're just tough dudes. Um, I would say that the SEAL teams is definitely not for everybody though. Um, you know, special forces isn't for everybody. It looks cool. I mean, some of these pictures I've seen are just amazing looking and it. And it's like, it's like movies, you know, you see a movie and you get excited. You're like, man, I, I want to go do that. And you don't realize what goes into doing that. You know, there's nothing cooler looking than when we're taking down a ship that's underway. And at nighttime, you know, we jump out of the back of an airplane with two cigarette boats. Right. And we're skydiving down after them. the whole thing, the whole night. I mean, we're ripping through waves we hook and climb. We're, we're climbing up this little caving ladder inside of a ship. Um, and I'm just, I'm using this as an example because if you're to watch it from the side, it really looks cool, but it's one of the scariest things that we do. Um, it's horrifying. You know, you go in the drink at night, you're done. You're out there by yourself. Um, and, and nobody's got time to come get you either. Like we'll, we'll deal with it later. Right. So, um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, I would tell, I would just, you know, people that have an aspiration, um, don't quit, but don't be afraid to change course if that makes sense. So maybe you're going headlong for something and you're just, this is what I'm going to do with my life no matter what. Well, if it's not going that way, you know, don't be afraid to change. I mean, a lot of people will just hang on to something because they're like, this is what I have to do. I, you know, people are expecting something of me and which makes me expect something more of myself. And maybe it's not the right thing, you know, so I would say consider that. And like I said, the biggest thing I could tell anybody listening would be, um, you know, the power of prayer and the ability to go to prayer and go to buddies that pray and family members that pray. Um, the Lord continues to you know give me discernment on decisions that I make and you know the more that I go to him the the more clear and easier it seems to be uh, if that makes sense um, now I'm not sitting here gonna tell you that you know I just pray and then I would levitate through target and you know, <laughs> I could see because like, you know so I don't I definitely don't want to come across that way like all right, I'm good. I'm just going to walk through. Nobody's going to shoot me ever. But there is a different level of, of comfort and stability, um, you know, n- knowing knowing what the Word says. Let me, let me and, ask you about that. Let me ask you about your faith journey a little sure. bit. And Justin Sheffield is our guest today. The book is Mob 6. It's a story of his uh, many years as a Navy SEAL Team 6 member. What a resume and what a good guy. The book available now from Defiance Press. Um, how do you square away your religious beliefs? You're, you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, um, with the fact that when you were in the military, your job was to kill people dead. How do you do it? I I mean, how do you put that together in your head? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, and a lot of people, um, I mean, this is not... Uh, you know, for you, and, and, and you don't have to give me numbers, and I'm not going to ask for them, but, you know, if, if you're a SEAL Team 6 member, you're in the middle of some pretty tough stuff out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it was a, a – it's a, it's a heavy responsibility. 
I think, especially where we were at, because you're you're almost by the day we would go out. And I'm just talking, I'm, you know, here I am at SEAL Team 6. I've been there a couple of years. I'm, I'm seasoned now, and now we're out, and we're just at deployment. We're just, we're getting it on, sort of on the regular. Um, the mental headspace, right? So <clears throat> I, I saw the utmost compassion uh, for human life, and I never, you know, I can tell you right now the quickest way out of there is if somebody's doing something in there you know, some kind of a sick thing, like they're getting off on killing people. Cause it wasn't like that. Now I would be lying if I said that it wasn't fun to kill bad guys because it was, it was my job. I was good at it. And I've also seen how evil these people are now to be put in a position to be sort of the, you know, making these immediate decisions like that, you know, that's a huge responsibility. We take it very seriously. We're watching each other's backs constantly. Um, you know, I never had to deal with any kind of problems or see anything wacky from other dudes, thank God. But, uh, you know, I did see really bad stuff from the enemy. And um, these are things that I prayed about. And honestly, you know, <laughs> this is the last war that happened, right? How many have happened? Um, God himself fully takes credit for wiping out the entire earth, save eight souls on the ark. Okay, and that I believe 100 percent that that happened. Um, we, the world didn't accidentally flood. Uh, the entire Bible from start to finish is very clear about the day of the Lord. Uh, when 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 the Lord returns and I'm just saying what the Bible says, you know, there's going to be tribulation for Christians, but also coming is is the wrath. Okay, the wrath of the lamb when Jesus returns and a lot of people are going to get killed. Um and it's very clear. I mean, he's going to smite the nations with the sword that comes out of his mouth. I mean, that tells me that he'll, he'll just speak it. Um, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm just saying, you know, for me, it's thou shall not kill. Okay. Well, that's very clear in the Bible what that means. You're not to murder. Um, you know, King David was made king, a man after God's own heart, who wrote the majority of the Psalms. And some uh, some of his feats were to absolutely slaughter the enemy, and he did, and all his men did. And you know, I'm sure some of the Israelites fighting under David weren't uh, weren't believers, just like in the SEAL teams, you know. So um, I think I'm probably a minority. I don't know. Uh, I say that you know, there may be half Christian. Some guys are quiet about it. Some guys are are uh, open about their faith. But I can tell you right now that when it comes down to going out and it's getting really scary, everybody bows their head. You know what I'm saying? Remorse. Like, Do you have remorse from any of those folks that, that you killed? Because I mean, you are a judge, jury and executioner all rolled into absolutely. one. And you talk about, you know, killing bad guys, you know, how do you know in every instance that that person right. is a bad guy? That's a great question because, uh, and I'll tell you this too, you know, there's been several occurrences where, you know, we'd come up on a target, how we know and how we go after without getting into too much detail. It's just, we, we have an amazing targeting, uh, sort of, uh, you know, intelligence gathering and targeting, um, network, um, of, of people that are all over it. Our Intel people are second to none. And, you know, 
we do interrogations. We do all kinds of things to get intel on where these guys are. And then we watch them, you know, we'll, we'll do reconnaissance and we'll make sure. But a lot of the preparation before we go out and hit a target is to make sure that we're going after the right guy. Who is this guy? Is this, is this guy just somebody that, you know, we had a human, human, uh, human intelligence or, or another Afghani from another tribe over come over and he's like, Hey, there's bad guys. There's Taliban up there. They're all armed. And it's not Taliban. It's just a militia that they've been fighting with for the last 50 years over a camel or whatever. And I'm, I'm telling you, it kind of sounds like a joke, but it really does happen. So you have to sort of take the whole piece and see what's going on. The easy stuff is when you got straight up fighters and that's generally what we would be after. Um, because then it's game on, it's a gunfight. It's no problem. There's no question like, Oh, I don't know if I can kill this person or not. It's like, I'm definitely, you, you, you know, um, and, and to that example, I've come up over a wall on a ladder as a sniper and I'm sitting here holding on a guy that's got an AK and, you know, we're on the target and it just doesn't look right, feel right, whatever. Or I can see, I can see, um, little kids shoes outside the door and it's like this guy's doing exactly what I would do if I heard a noise outside I'd get my rifle and I'd go out and check it out and he didn't need to die and those type those type of situations again it's on us was I was I within my rules of engagement to engage him yes all the intel lined up he came out he has a gun he's yelling out at us pointing the gun you know but we're 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 given this kind of responsibility because we got to deal with those situations too and um and calm it down and tell them to go back inside or whatever we do but but there's a lot of that um but yeah i mean so you know i don't have any remorse i really don't um i have remorse on a lot of things but not on killing bad guys nobody i've killed do i this this you know i don't lose any sleep um, your deployments were in the, the Middle East, and I wonder if that has colored the way you look at um, at Muslims or folks from that part of the country or what your interactions were like with civilians in those countries. Right. Well, another great question. Um, I'd say that we've saved, you know, 10 times as many Muslims uh, as I've been in any kind of, uh, you know, enemy engagement with. And the majority of the people, the civilian people there, I don't care what they believe in. Like, we, we've done hostage rescues and, and saved Muslims. Um, they're human beings to me, honestly. Um, now, these guys that take Islam, if, if there's a, you know, I'll, I'll just say this. If you're following the Quran truly to the T, um, that's what we get when we have Taliban, okay, or Al Qaeda. You know, if you if if, if Sharia law has been imposed, uh, I don't know if you've ever read the Quran or anything like that, but it's it's pretty dangerous. Um, I think that we have an amazing understanding in this country with with uh, a lot of the Muslim people that live here in, in America, and they're extremely peaceful. In fact, most of them are. They're probably sick of. Um, being called out, you know, but my, the guy, I'll I'll say this too, the guy that taught me Arabic, which don't ask me to say any Arabic, um, but I took nine months of Arabic and 
you know, this guy was full on and he ended up, we kind of have a debate for about an hour every day in the morning before we started about Christianity and Islam. And it was, it was great. I loved it. Cause it's like, man, this guy doesn't want to kill me. Um, and he's actually very interested and we're sitting here looking at scripture and he's showing me what he's got. And, and he ended up converting and becoming a Christian. Hmm. And, uh, and you know, his dad told him if he ever saw him again, he'd kill him. And I'm like, man, does that, I would never tell my kid that. <laughs> right. Um, never. And I'm not saying that every Muslim's like that. I'm just saying, uh, and I don't even classify them all as a, as some kind of people. Um, I think, uh, you know, I have nothing against a person. In fact, I'm pleading with Muslims just like I would plead with a Jew. Um, you're a creation. You're made in the image of God. And you're lost. You've been duped. That's what I would say. You've been duped. Um, and I would offer them truth and plead with them to, to believe um, because at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't really matter, man. We're all, all of our fate is the same. All of us are under the same. The Bible has the exact same, um, description of our heart and it's grossly sinful. No one's good. Um, it's very clear. And so we all are, are, you know, the wages of sin is death. The wages, what we earned, that's death. That's what I would tell the Muslim. The wages of sin is death. That's what the Bible, that's what the Creator says. Okay? Um, Allah is not God. Um, so. Justin Sheffield is our guest, yes. and, and he's uh, obviously very strong in his faith. His book is Mob 6. Uh, Justin is a former Navy SEAL, SEAL Team 6 member, highly decorated, and um, I've got a couple of questions about specific military topics before we wrap up, but I, I'm curious as to what you think is the public's biggest misconception about uh, SEAL Team 6 or the military in general. I mean, you were, you were in it from the other side. You were in it at the highest level. What does the public have wrong about you guys? Um, you know, I... I'm not exactly sure. I, th I think for the most part, the public uh, is is behind us. That's that's what I felt. Although in these recent past couple of weeks and months, I'm not really sure how that would be now. But um, it, it seemed as though uh, the public is for us and behind us. There's been some wacky stuff that's come out um, by different journalists and whatnot. Pretty much since I've been in, though, really. Um, and you know, there's been seals, unfortunately. I mean, just like with anything, it's like there's a couple of guys that do something really stupid or really bad, and the entire group gets labeled immediately. doesn't matter what team they were from, who they were. I mean, I've seen guys get out, and they make the news because they used to be a SEAL, and they've done something pretty atrocious. And um, so those things are never good because we are held to a pretty high standard, and we should be the highest in my mind. Um I think, uh, you know, for the most part, the public, I mean, this has been really well received so far, uh, my book. Um, so I'm kind of judging on that. There's, there's been no negative attention. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be that way always. I'm sure 
there will be plenty, uh, especially when we start talking about faith and, and, you know, there's a lot of people that get inflamed really quick when you start talking about Muslims and Christians and this kind of thing, you know, so that's, that's nothing new, but you know, um, my ultimate goal here is to plead with people, you know, this has been a rough life and, um, what I've found to be the truth for me, uh, is exactly what the Bible says. And that's the ultimate truth. It's not my truth. It's that's the truth. Um, so I, I would declare that that and proclaim that. And I would just plead with people, um, to see that because that, you know, I could say a lot of things about, okay, never quit, you know, have this routine and do these things and you're going to have a better life and all these things. It's like, this life is going to end no matter what, there's nothing you can do to get past. We, we got about 70 years on this planet, right? Roughly. There's nothing we can do to, to expand that. Maybe you live to a hundred. Okay, cool. Um, so this, this will end, this flesh will end. It's going to go away. It's going to go back to dust. Um, the Bible says that, and we know that. Um, we're not like animals. We're like nothing else. We were made in his image. We're the only ones that do funerals. We're the only creation that can, I can talk to you and communicate with you right now over a phone that some other human created. And, uh, and I'm, I'm putting in what, what is in my head into your head, and you're understanding it. There's not an animal that can do that. There's not. They don't build things. They don't build buildings. They don't create things. So we didn't, we didn't come from nothing. We came from a creator um, who's always been. And um, I don't know if I'm answering your question or just tangenting right now. <laughs> but, <all> right. <laughs> so let me, uh, let me ask you before we run out of time here. Justin Sheffield, no, our no guest problem. today, and the, the book is uh, Mob 6. It's about his time as a, a member of Navy SEAL Team 6. Tell me about your exit from the Navy and from SEAL Team 6 and what happened in the aftermath. Yeah. Um, well, so I got out of Blue Team, which was the assault team I went to after Green Team, the selection. Um, I went there in 05 and I, I left the team, I think it was about 2013 maybe, and I went down to training, and I was in a pretty rough way when I left. Uh, a rough way in what just, way? Yeah, just mentally and physically. Um, I knew my back was done, uh, which is, a, you know, it's hard to swallow. It's like I'll be on a, you know, there's some days I'm on a damn cane. You know what I'm saying? And, and I've got a back brace and all this other garbage. But it's like it's hard when you're a SEAL because you, you have to have a strong back. There's no – you're not doing that job. And mentally, I was fried. Um, I was very uh, – I needed to take a break. You know, I should have taken a break somewhere in there, I think. And, you know, when I give guys advice now, it's it's do that. You know, like just give guys – make them take a break because guys, there's guys like me out there that are sometimes just knuckleheadish. And it's like, okay, if I'm not dead – and I'm still able to operate with these guys and I need to just keep doing this until I, I was thinking I was going to do it until I die. I truly thought I was going to die over there. Um, I was like, at some point, you know, I'm going to get killed because it, it definitely seemed never ending to us. Um, 
around that time, morale was pretty bad. You know, we had lost a lot of guys. We had done some great things, but um, just the rules of engagement had changed. Our role over there had changed. It was very, it was strange times, man. We were tasked to train guys that we had no business being around. And they took us and made us train them almost as a, well, I have, I have some theories on what was going on, but I think, uh, it was pretty bad. And, uh, I, I didn't care for the headshed, which is the leadership at all, all the way up. Um, and so I moved on and I went to training. It was great, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't getting better. I ended up going out to a place called NICO, which stands for National Intrepid Center of Excellence, and it's out in Bethesda. And a lot of guys go through this, and basically you sit with a, you know, a myriad of doctors and psychiatrists and all kinds of stuff, and and they, they do scan, they do everything, you know, your ears, your um, everything, and you sit there and you talk to shrinks and you talk to you know, ortho and, and, uh, they put me on all kinds of medication, man. And a lot of it actually helped, but it was some stuff where it's like, you're done operating kind of stuff like psycho psychosis meds, or I don't know if I'm saying that right, but, um, stuff like Paxil, uh, I was on, um, Ritalin, uh, which, which upgraded to Adderall eventually. And, um, and then pain meds, man. I was on, you know, it started with codeine, went to oxy, uh, you know. And when you're crunching up an oxy and taking an Adderall, and then you're taking a, you know, antidepressant med, and then you've got all like five other medications to take because those completely screw up sleeping and everything else. So you got to take Ambien or whatever. I just, it's a total disaster. So I was, uh, I was, I was a bit out of control and, um, I knew I was getting, I was going to get medically retired. Uh, and you know, it was kind of one of those times where it's like, man, I, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm a, I'm a loser. I'm, I failed, you know, my family, I've, you know, whatever felt my guys. It's just one of those feels pretty dark, you know, cause you're outside of the team and this, these are the guys you've been with forever. It's your family, so to speak. And, but once you leave that man, it, it's, you're on your own. I mean, guys will check in with you as they can, but I, you know, and the military does what they can, but you, you can't expect them. It's like, there's, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people out there they've got to worry about. Um, and the guys, and my team, you know, I mean, I love them, but they're, they they got to keep going, right? They're not, they don't have time to worry. So, um, I was in a bad way. I was looking forward to killing myself. Um, I had, I had several plans, several spots picked out and, um, it was one of those things, man. It's quite a bit worse than what the book really leads to, uh, cause it's really hard to write about, but you know, what I found out very quickly is that I wasn't alone in the way I was feeling, you know what I'm saying? And, uh, the stuff I was going through, I wasn't alone at all. In fact, I found out that, you know, it was more common than I thought with other guys. And it's just a, it's a scary thing because 
you know, we're afraid to ask for help. We're afraid to talk to anybody. Um, we're afraid of how it looks, how it feels. You know, we're supposed to be able to be the ones that are leading other guys and helping other guys. And it's like, man, now I need help, you know? And to me, it wasn't, you know, I didn't want, I was like, man, I just want to end this. I'm done. You know, I, I don't know how to get out of it. I'm addicted to drugs now. Um, you know, I, I had a whole slew of people come into my life that some were amazing and some were just wolves and I didn't know any better when I got retired, man, like that's the problem is coming out of the military. And I would stress this to other, uh, vets getting out. It's like very careful because we, we live and breathe with each other, man. And we trust each other. And that's the fastest way out, man. You violate integrity with each other, man. You know, you're gone out of the team. You get out and, and you think somebody's nice to you. Like I grew up in the SEAL teams, right? So I'm like, this is how everybody is. I, they're nice to me. I can trust them. All right, we're, we're in this together. I can trust you. And it's not that way, clearly. I learned a lot really quick. Um, but uh, eventually, I kind of go through what, what happened there uh, in the book. And, you know, I found, I heard of this place um, called the Brain Treatment Center. And they did transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's a big, long word that sounds super hardcore but basically it's magnetic resonance they turn on an electromagnet and it's tuned to a specific frequency and of the 30 billion neurons you have in your brain if some of them are out of whack they're able to measure and see that for example 30 billion neurons if 10,000 of them aren't, aren't functioning as they should that's autism so they can see these things in the brain uh, with an EEG they're measuring um, frequency and speed. Um, and what they've done is, you know, they put this thing on your head and eight seconds on the minute, 30 minutes, you know, I had a horrible experience the first week. Um, I felt like my mind was oozing out of my ears. I don't know how to describe it, but I, I started slowly getting off my meds. And I mean, every day it seemed like I was making progress with this, this, uh, treatment. Um, I started also, and, and it, what's funny is about, I was going to talk about, you know, I started smoking weed heavily for pain because I was just dead set on getting off opiates. Cause I mean, I knew that that I was heavily addicted to opiates and you know, it's like I, I was enjoying the feeling, you know, it's like, I can't up the dose anymore, man. I'm going to kill myself doing that. And I've thought about that too. You know, that was, but anyway, um, it was, it was just a, it was a bad bad time you know um how are you now how are you doing now uh i'm doing you know i think as good as i could be i've got uh, you know the skies are definitely blue now um i uh it's been a long road but you know i've gotten to help a lot a lot of other guys out through this um and that's great i get to see kind of miracles happen with our foundation and what we're doing um, with other guys, getting them through these treatments and, um, and just being able to, you know, my boys were really little, thank God. They don't really remember how I was, but I remember they were scared of me, you know, but they don't remember that. And they're, you know, they're, they're young now, but it's, it's the blessing now is I'm, I'm here. I'm with them. I'm not on deployment. I'm getting to raise these boys and, and, um, you know, 
my my wife's teaching at a Christian school down the road that they go to. It's pretty amazing. So God has definitely brought me back around and um and blessed me and my family just ridiculously. It's been awesome. Um, we should mention Justin's uh, uh, foundation that he mentioned is All Eagles Oscar, and you can find them online. The website is alleaglesoscar.org, so check it out. Thank you. Yes, sir, All Eagles Oscar. Uh, Justin, before we let you jump, I'm going to ask you just some really quick questions, and you can give me a, a yes or a no, sure. a good idea, bad idea, some things in the news that have to do with the military. Uh, Justin Sheffield, right. our guest, Mob 6 is the book, his story of his time as a Navy SEAL, and I'm glad you're doing better. All right. In the news today from Military.com, uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Esper proposes getting rid of military promotion photos to eliminate unconscious bias. The story is today military committed to rooting out racism in the ranks, so they want to get rid of these military promotion photos that maybe show all white faces. Good idea or bad idea? Um, man, I, I, I really think it's ridiculous to get the military involved in any of this racial stuff, uh, or politics. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's, it's your answer. So it's a good answer. That's that's the first one I can think of, man. It's, it's, it's not good. You know, um, we need to keep that separate. Um, the military is very different than, than what's going on and, and the people that are there, uh, you know, they'll get handled if there's some racism going on. I never saw that. That's ridiculous. Um, Along those same but, lines, what do you think about uh, uh, the White House uh, talking about uh, the potential of these some of these military bases being renamed that are named after Confederate generals? Good idea, bad idea? Um. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think we need to be canceling names of bases. You know. I don't. I don't. I don't think it's a good idea. Um, maybe they'll rename them Trump, though. <laughs> you know, if they're going to rename them, then so look for somebody good to name them after. Um, so it'd be interesting to see. You know, what what are you trading this name out for? It's part of history. Um, you know, I think back. Well, whatever. I mean, I could go. I could go down a lot of roads here about that. Um, yeah, well, one last but, story that's in the news with you yeah. guys, and you talk about this in your book, so I thought, I thought I'd bring it up. Um, yes, you sir. talked about when you were a kid. One of the first things you did that showed you were really serious about this is you took the ASVAB test, and I also took the ASVAB test, and so I remember that. Uh, you know, many many high school seniors take the ASVAB test because it gets them out of school for the whole day. Um, Defense uh, Secretary Mark Esper taking a look at whether the ASVAB is worth even doing anymore. He has a beef with the entrance exam and is thinking about canceling that out. Is is there a place for that, or should there be a different standard in, in figuring out, uh, you know, how to to recruit the best young men and women? You know, I I actually think there might be a place for that. Um, I think that it needs to be looked at um, because I do think that it doesn't give everybody the same, you know, I, I was different in school. So I kind of relate to the guys that have a harder time taking tests. Um, you know, I, I also don't think that they could tell that I was going to be a good Navy SEAL by an ASVAB. I mean, there's a lot of other tests out there that they could look into maybe to revamp it a little bit. If anything, I don't know about doing away cause you want to see what you're getting, 
just intelligence wise and, and just experience wise and stuff like that. So it's a good, you know, uh, test for that. But I, you know, revamp it if anything, maybe. Well, um, you know, so. there's that, that chain of thought that the train of thought that as long as somebody's generally healthy and they're motivated, that not being a good tester and, you know, fouling that out and, and you not being able to get in the right. military is probably not a good thing. And it's my right. understanding that the, the latest census showed that, uh, Less than 30% of kids are qualified because of the ASVAB test to join the military. And and worse, less than 1% are even interested in doing it. I can see why the Pentagon might think maybe we need to look at this in a different way. Yeah, Yeah, that's uh, I haven't heard that statistic. So that but that tells you right there. I mean, I I definitely didn't I didn't think it was a very important piece. I'll be honest with you. Um, I mentioned it in the book because it's one of the things we had to do to get a source rating. But honestly, if they would look at a guy, talk to him like they're going to do anyway and find out what that person's into, they're just going to be more motivated to do the job, I think. I mean, I would never, uh, you know, if I had guys under me, I'd find out what they want to do. Maybe one guy wants to be, he's like, he skydives on the weekend. Cool, man. You're in charge of air ops. One guy is like a total bullet nerd that goes out to the range every day and shoots. Well, he can be the armor. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. So I like it and I like the conversation and I love the book. It's an honest, unflinching book and uh, you pull no punches and you tell your story and you live your truth. And I appreciate you being here today. Really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Justin Sheffield, our guest. The book is Mob Six. It's from Defiance Press. It's available at Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold. You're going to love this book. Check it out. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast. A service of our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. I'm Burke Allen in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.